0: Here we go, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. My name is Eddie Cohn, host, creator of the Spiritual Spiral. I am thrilled that you're listening today. And this show, just, I've been thinking a lot about what's going on. And this show is sort of allowing me to share my thoughts and hopefully you connect with some of the things I'm thinking and maybe some things that I say are challenging to hear. And I think, unfortunately, though, we live in a world where It feels like everybody, the world, whether whether it's consciously or subconsciously, it feels like the world wants everybody to be the same. And if you think differently, if you act differently, then if you're not careful, you're going to be judged, you're going to lose friends, you're going to be called a hater. It feels like the world wants you to just be friends with people that agree with you. Of course, I, I do think it's important to be around people that are supportive and listen to you, you know, even if if somebody doesn't agree with you, hopefully they listen. And so I I just, I'm really conflicted by the world that we live in right now. And by the way, before I get into the episode, means a lot if you write a review on iTunes, there's tons of podcasts, maybe 25 million at last count. So if you dig it, write a review, give it a five star, share it with your friends. The show is meant to create some deeper thinking to create conversations, not just like texts and DMs, but actual conversations. I typically would say face-to-face, but now those are sort of hard to come by. So you may have to do a Zoom talk or a FaceTime talk. But first of all, a few things that, that happened to me. I went to the, the, I went to the dentist this last week just for a cleaning. And the woman, that, uh, the, dental, the dental hygienist who, who was working on me, she was in full body gear from head to toe, two masks. She looked like one of those epidemiologists that works at a virology lab in Wuhan. Like you've probably seen them in movies or maybe in contaminated, I forgot, or pandemic or contagion. There we go with Gwyneth Paltrow where these epidemiologists are in full body gear. And I just, I guess I understand because She is dealing with people's germs, and um, or at least people's mouths are open, and she has to be careful. I just, I can't believe still that this is the world that we live in right now. It's shocking. And I don't know if this will end. Will it ever end? How long do you think it's going to take until that world that existed three, four months ago will exist again? Are you thinking six months? Are you thinking a year? I'm thinking minimum three to five years, maybe 10. And I think we're just touching on or scratching the surface of the economic fallout, the unemployment fallout that that has sort of evolved over the last few months. Because when I drive around Los Angeles, and I was in Venice, I I ride my bike every Saturday. and, And it's sort of this very meditational experience for me where I, I, I don't have my phone. It's just me and the bike. And just, I really think a lot about our world. And I look around and there, there are barely any cars. Most stores are closed. It I feels like the world has sort of ended. I don't know if what we experienced before this whole thing will ever happen again. You know, I've, I've had this very negative attitude towards social media. And TikTok has been one of these huge social media platforms. It's sort of taken over the United States over the last probably, I guess, year or two. And, and I'm not on the platform. Um, I remember being at Trader Joe's a few months ago, waiting in line. And this woman behind me, we were in line for like an hour and this woman behind me just is laying her phone up on against the wall and she's just sort of dancing for for an hour and i finally ask her what are you doing and she says oh i'm you know i'm working on my tiktok videos this this is our world right now instead of people educating themselves reading having conversations trying to deepen their life deepen their life experiences people are working on their TikTok videos, people are scrolling, people are wasting a gargantuan amount of time on social media platforms. And so a story came out this last week, in, came out of the New York Times. By the way, it's, just, it's so funny, I open up the New York Times, and the first headline is, Florida sets daily US record with over 15,000 new virus cases. I'm t- I'm telling you, the world wants you to be freaked out. And just we need a little. Pers- there's no perspective here, no context, no discussion about heart disease, no discussion about high cholesterol, no discussion about vitamin D and the importance of being outside and exercise. There's nothing out there about what you should do to try to stay healthy. They just want you to stay home, wear a mask, and that is their that's their answer. That is the government's answer on how you should handle this situation. And the media is doing nothing but talking about new cases, surges, hotspots, and deaths. No wonder the world's so fucked up right now. I mean, sorry I sort of got sidetracked, sidetracked but I wanted to read this, this excerpt about TikTok, and all I see is Pittsburgh seemed like a virus success story. Now cases are surging. So yeah, in the New York Times... Gen Z and millennial users have found community on TikTok, on TikTok, and for some of them, it's their livelihood. Ever since Secretary of State told Fox News on Monday that the United States was considering banning TikTok, <laughs> TikTok users have been scrambling. Some have engaged in open revolt, retaliating by posting negative reviews of President Trump's 2020 campaign app. The app received more than 700 negative reviews on Wednesday and only 26 positive ones. For Gen Z and millennials, TikTok is our clubhouse, and Trump is, is threatening it. Yuri Black, a 19-year-old TikTok user in California, if you're going to mess with us, we will mess with you. Suspicion of TikTok, which is owned by Chinese company ByteDance, has come from the private sector, too. On Friday, Amazon asked its employees to delete the app from their phones. Beneath the frustration, there is anxiety from its users. For many young people, TikTok has been an outlet for creative expression and human connection, especially throughout months of distance learning and social isolation. If TikTok did shut down, it would be like losing a bunch of really close friends I made. Losing all the progress and work I did to get a big following, said Ashley Huniford 17, who has more than 400,000 followers on the app. It's a big part of who I've become as a teenager. Losing it would be like losing a little bit of me. Oh, boy. It is, it is definitely turning into the end of the world. It really is. I, I guess I'm glad I'm not a kid right now, because... Imagine handling the pressures and anxieties of your normal analog life and then having to deal with the anxieties of Instagram, Facebook, and now your favorite best friend, TikTok, is potentially going away. So you're going to have to go to therapy to talk about the anxiety and depression that you have because TikTok is gone. It's, it's so fucking sad and pathetic what social media and technology have done to the world. And I even say this all the time. The ironic part of the pandemic is it's forced people to become more reliant on their technology, more devoted to their digital fake life as opposed to their more fulfilling analog life. And, you know, I've said this many times where there's so much attention on COVID-19 that nobody's thinking about depression. Nobody's thinking about drug addiction. I think to myself right now, what are people that are drug addicts doing during this pandemic? How are they coping with this? If they can't go to a substance abuse counselor or they're seeing their counselor over the phone or through Zoom, They can't go to AA meetings if you're uh, an alcoholic. I mean, their life has to be spiraling out of control. I read an article in Rolling Stone, Matt Pinfield, who was a host on MTV, talks about relapsing during the coronavirus quarantine and his road to recovery. For many dealing with drug and alcohol addictions, the coronavirus coronavirus quarantine has had a crippling effect on the community and routines they have cultivated, from the shutdown of in-person 12-step programs, to the inability to secure medications, to the overall mental strain of isolation. Longtime DJ Matt Pinfield, who has admittedly struggled with alcoholism and addiction, for most of his adult life, also experienced firsthand how the virus has impacted the recovery of so many. I was reading about the uncounted casualties of COVID and a lot of that was referencing how if you were in recovery like myself, it's all taken away. Suddenly severed from his network of associates and unable to attend the physical therapy he requires after being hit by a car in 2018, he relapsed. And I guess this is my point. Think that you are in a car accident and you need to go to physical therapy, but suddenly you can't go to physical therapy anymore because of COVID-19. The amount of attention and fear that has been instilled in people's minds because of this freaking virus has created such a dystopian world around us that people can't go to their physical therapy, people can't go to the doctor and get a checkup, people aren't checking their cholesterol levels, people aren't eating as well, people aren't exercising, people are sitting on their ass, people aren't talking and having conversations anymore. This this whole thing is literally ripping the world apart. My least worry right now is actually COVID-19. So I'm watching a show called Billions, And love the first four seasons. This fifth season's been okay. And this is not going to be easy for me to talk about, but I'm going to try and talk about it in a respectful manner. Um, I mean, it shouldn't be difficult, but I I have to be very careful with my words here. You know, I'm just, I don't like movements. I don't like when we label things like white privilege, systemic racism, I don't, because it sort of turns everybody into the same, and then it just assumes that everybody has their own, everybody has the same experience. Every white person is privileged. Every black person has dealt with systemic racism. And I think to myself, you know, I I was born white, and I have had innumerable issues, conflicts, health issues. I was in and out of the hospital for 10 years. I missed two years of school. I've dealt with depression, anxiety. I've had to take over 50, 60 milligrams of steroids, not like the steroids that you take to enhance performance like an athlete would, but, you know, the anti-inflammatory steroids that, I mean, I, I was on and off them for years. I dealt with a heart condition, pericarditis that could have led to a heart attack. So I still have to be very aware and conscious of my heart. I'm, I'm a white guy, but I've never felt, and maybe I wasn't even conscious, consciously aware of it, but I've never felt like I was privileged. I mean, I've, I have felt privileged to be alive I have felt privileged that I have these innate abilities of mine to create and think and talk and make people laugh and have a good time. And then I I have these innate abilities to just create and be creative. And I, I think I'm a pretty nice, loving guy. But it's been a lot of work. My life, I've... I have achieved what I have through a lot of hard work, but also a lot of luck, a lot of timing, a lot of things that I think may have been in my control, but weren't in my control. I get troubled when something bad happens in the world, which clearly is terrible and should never happen, but then it sort of creates or perpetuates blanket statements about our culture. And I think that's where we get into problems. And we potentially, you know, these these comments like white privilege and systemic racism are meant to bring awareness to a problem. But in, in, in actuality, I, I almost wonder if they're just adding to the problem you know, I, I think of... I'm going to play a clip from Barack Obama, which is really powerful. You know, I think about Stephen Hawking. And, you know, he was paraplegic. I, I don't remember if he had epilepsy. Um, but he went on to become one of the most powerful, influential scientists, mathematicians, thinkers, ever. I think about Kevin Hart, who has gone on to become... The, one of the most successful comedians ever. I think about Barack Obama, who, if, if racism currently is that bad right now, how in the world do we live in a world where Barack Obama became the president of the United States? And, and, then, and then I guess some people could say that, well, those are exceptions. But maybe the world wants us to think they're exceptions. I mean, of course, I'm not naive. There's terrible things that happen in the world. There's also really amazing things that happen in the world. But it feels like when something bad, really terrible happens in the world, the media or people out there want that to control how we think about the world. lose context, and then we lose individual experiences, and it's just assumed that everybody is just this, and everybody's experience is just that. I mean, I, I think to myself, obviously, there's racism. Obviously, it's terrible. But then I also think to myself, what get somebody past the bad that's happening? Is it hard work? Is it luck? Is it timing? I mean, how did Barack Obama and Michelle Obama get to where they are? I mean, Michelle became a successful lawyer and and I think she's going to run for president. I think she should. Because I think she should win. And I I think we need, imagine living in America where we have a black woman president. How amazing would that be? So I, I think to myself, I'm not naive. Of course there's racism and it's terrible. But we also have these experiences where despite the racism, despite this fucked up world that we live in, people out there still become successful. Now, did Barack Obama have to work harder than his peers? I mean, I I don't know. I can't argue that. I mean, at what point do you argue hard work you know, it, no matter what, is a black person's life going to be harder than a white person's life just because of the color of their skin? I mean, maybe, I, I don't know. I, I don't have that answer. But, you know, Stephen Hawking's life, is, is he an exception? You know, oh, he really didn't have white privilege because he was paraplegic? And yeah, I, my dad worked his ass off, and he worked completely commissioned. He didn't have any money from his parents. And if he didn't work, he made no money. I worked commissioned for years, and if I didn't work, I would make no money. I, I don't know. It's just I think there's, there's so many nuances and so many different experiences with, within life that when I see these blanket statements I get concerned because, in this weird sort of way, I think it's it's actually creating more harm than good. It's pigeonholing people. It's just assuming that you're this without really getting to know you. And I think we have to sort of reconcile this point that if you don't know some, and I was riding my bike the other day, and I'm and the first thing. That you know about anybody is the color of their skin from a distance, because that's all you know. And then as you get closer, if you're on your bike or going for a walk, then you see their smile. Then you see if they have hair, if they're wearing a hat. Then you sort of pick up on their energy, if they're, you know, potentially somebody that you want to get to know. But the first thing that just whether we like it or not, that we notice of somebody is the color of their skin. That's just, that is just the reality. And then when they open up their mouth and talk and you have a conversation and then, then you get to know more about them. But unfortunately that's sadly the world that we live in. And there's plenty of people out there that will judge you based on the color of your skin. Sometimes I I'm going to play this clip of Barack Obama talking cause I think it's powerful, but sometimes I wonder, and I've said this before if the world is as bad as the media wants us to think it is, I, I went for my bike ride yesterday and there were Hispanics, African-Americans, Asians, white people, and we're all around each other. And, and this, this black couple at the stoplight at San Vicente and seventh street, you know, waved to me and said, hello. I didn't know them, but they said, hi. and And of course I'm happy. They said hi, but, you know, they, they seem really happy. And it, I, I, I don't know. I just, sometimes I, I wonder if it's all attitude. And I think sometimes it's easy to blame. It's easy to be the victim. And it almost feels like the world wants us to blame and, and, and give a reason as to why we're not living the life we want. I mean, I don't know. How did Kevin Hart do it? I'm sure he dealt with systemic racism in the comedy circuit. Did he let any of that stop him? And again, I'm not saying that that's any sort of excuse for bad behavior or racist behavior. I guess my point is is that there's bad shit everywhere. I like to think there's also a lot of good stuff everywhere too. And it's up to us to decide what is going to control the narrative of our lives? Are we going to let the good stories impact the narrative of our culture and our lives? Or are we going to let the bad ones? And it's not to say that the bad ones should be ignored. They shouldn't. But when we start throwing around terms that sort of are supposed to encapsulate billions of people, I think it actually diminishes our individual experiences. So I'm going to play this clip of Barack Obama which I think is powerful. It was he was on the Mark Marin show a few years ago. And so he was talking about race relations in America. And I just I think it's powerful stuff and I think it's it's um telling and I think it's very um now and I think it's important to to listen to. And, and one other thing and it's ironic that you know Kanye West this last week just announced that he might be running for president. Whether you agree with Barack Obama's policies or not, what's, what's so nice to listen to is somebody with some class, some dignity, some intellect, an ability to communicate and be thoughtful. And I do think my biggest issue with Donald Trump, beyond many of his, his policies, he lacks class, dignity, thoughtfulness he doesn't elevate the stature of the president of the United States. He seems to diminish it. And it it almost makes people feel like, well, fuck, if Donald Trump can be president, well, I can be president. I mean, it just, it feels like, it feels like a fucking circus. So let's listen to Barack Obama. I'll share a few thoughts and I'll let you go.
1: In terms of uh, racial relations, Where where are we with that in terms of when you came in, in your mind? Well, first of all, I I always tell young people in particular, uh, do not say that nothing's changed when it comes to race in America unless you lived through being a black man in the 1950s or 60s -hmm. or 70s. It is incontrovertible that race relations have improved significantly during my lifetime and yours, and that opportunities have opened up and that attitudes have changed. Yeah. That that is a fact. What is also true is that the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow discrimination in almost every institution of our lives, you know, that casts a long shadow. And that's still part of our DNA that's, that's passed on. Uh, it, we're not cured of it. Racism. Racism. We are not cured of. Clearly. Uh, and, and, and it's not just a matter of uh, it not being polite to say nigger in public. That's not the measure of whether racism still exists or not. It's not just a matter of overt discrimination. We have to, Societies don't overnight completely erase everything that happened two to three hundred years prior and so what i tried to describe in in the selma speech uh that i gave commemorating the march there was again a notion that progress is real and we have to take hope from that progress but what is also real is that the march isn't over and the work is not yet completed and then our job is to try in very concrete ways to figure out what more can we do. So let's take the example of police practices. Cops have a really tough job. Yep. And part of the reason cops have a tough job, particularly in big cities, it...
0: I just want to interrupt really fast. I mean, I've, I kind of got a little bit of pushback a few weeks ago when I said something like, when this whole thing was going down with the riots out here that I actually felt bad for cops. But I think we do forget that, that police officers have really awful jobs sometimes. And it's just sort of, I, I don't know. I think it's just easily forgotten. <laughs> and I don't, uh, anyway, so I, I, I agree with Barack, ev- everything he's saying, uh, but I just, I felt like I should interject really quickly.
1: That There are communities that are poor are systematically locked out of opportunity. That suffer from legacies of discrimination that have been built up over yeah. generations. And we send cops in there basically to say, keep those folks uh, from making too much trouble. But how do we fix what you just said? Right. Well, they, I'm, I'm going to get to that. So, so the point is though that we can break it out out into these component parts, and we can say, number one, there's specific ways that we can make. Police community relations better And police more accountable And so we put together a task force With police officers and Young people including some of the folks Who led the Ferguson marches Mm -hmm. And surprisingly they came up with a consensus Of things that could be done that would make things better All right, so let's implement those Now in the meantime What are we doing to help Those lowest income communities We know that for example early childhood Education works That is one way to break The legacy of racism and poverty, if a three-year-old, four-year-old kid is in an environment of love and is getting a good meal and has a teacher that's trained in uh, early childhood development and is hearing enough words and is being engaged enough, they can get to where a middle-class kid is pretty quickly is that happening it, it turns out it is but it's the problem is is that it ha- happens spottily, right it happens in this community or this school district or this neighborhood or this outstanding principal is making something happen or this philanthropist has decided decide to do something but what it what hasn't happened is us making a collective commitment to do it so the the point i'm making is is that when you look at how to deal with racism, Mm -hmm. how to deal with issues of uh, some of the police uh, shootings that have been involved, I'm less interested in having an ideological conversation than I am looking at what has worked in the past Mm -hmm. and applying it and scaling up. What is required is a sense on the part of all of us that what happens to those kids matters to me even if i never meet them because my society is going to be better off i'm going to feel better about the the america i live in and over time i'm confident that my children and my grandchildren are going to live a better life if those kids also have opportunity that's where we have to feel hopeful rather than just say that nothing's changed we have to say wow we've actually made significant progress over the last 50 years. If we made as much progress over the next 10 years as we have over the last yeah. 50, things would be better.
0: But don't, Gosh, I could just keep listening to him. I think we need to be reminded of that. But I do think the world is a better place than it was 40, 50 years ago. Personal interracial relationships – But it it feels like the media and social media are just adding so much toxicity to our brains. It's making people think that there's systemic racism every second, every second of the day, and everybody's experiencing it all the time. I I I like to believe Barack that we have changed. And of course, there's still more work to do. It just feels like the media or social media or somebody out there sort of creates these blanket statements, systemic racism, white privilege, and it's, it gets us to feel something before we even sort of do anything for ourselves. I mean, I feel like individually, we need to think what we can do better to create more love and less racism in the world. And this beyond just you know beyond whatever the the media or social media thinks we should do we need to we need to decide what we can do, and if it means i don't know, live in a neighborhood with it's that's multiracial, become more friends with people that aren't your same ethnic background i mean I've been friends with middle eastern and and Lebanese people for the last 15, 20 years, it wasn't a conscious decision like, oh, I should be friends with people from Saudi Arabia or from Lebanon. But I just connected with them during college and after college. And we've become best friends. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's something that you consciously seek out. But we do need to be open to other people's cultures. I think traveling is really important. I think Americans have this strange ego about our country. Like, we don't have to visit other cultures. The media wants us to look down on Mexico. They only talk about, you know, um, gang violence, drug lords. They, They don't talk about any of the good coming out of Mexico. The media controls this narrative also where we think that we're better than the rest of the world. I mean, Fox News certainly wants us to think that way. So it's it's complicated, but what what can you do to educate yourself and become more open and curious about other people's cultures that are different from yours? I, I don't know. I just I get a little frustrated when the media or people out there are controlling the narrative and and what we should think, and they make it seem like it's much worse than it is, or all white people are this, or all black people are this, and. There's just so many different—we have so many different experiences. Your life experience is its own, and it has great days, and it has shitty days. And there might be five years—if you're 40, you may look back, and there might be 10 years of your life that was just awful. Now, was was your 10 years more difficult than this other person's 10 years? I mean, I, I don't know. It's all subjective, Really? And yes, maybe you make $50,000 more than the other person down the street who doesn't have that $50,000, but maybe they have lupus and and they had to deal, or maybe the person that makes more money had lupus. And so they were in and out of the hospital and have been dealing with uh, health issues for that 10 years. Maybe, you know, I'm watching the show Billions. I keep talking about it. Those Some of the people on that show are, are multi-billionaires, but... Sometimes I think they have more problems than the person that's making $100,000 a year. So it's it's just, the world wants you to be like simplified. Your life is so complex and it, it ebbs and flows and you have good days and bad. And I, and I don't know, I just, I get frustrated when the world just seemingly wants us all to sort of like just be the same. So that's today's episode. Thank you so much. Listening. I say it a lot, but if you dig the show, please head over to iTunes, write a review, go to imeddiecone.com where you can sign up for the newsletter. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Eddie cone and say hello. As always, thank you so much for listening, supporting, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast.